0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Awesome. Thank you, Jade. Um, I see she left the pin here so I can pop a few more bubbles. All right, moving on. Um... Yeah, what what can we say? You know, it's Reformation Sunday and there's so, so much to be said and so obviously we're just going to pick and choose a few things and one of the things that has been on my heart is just to explain a little more about um, this idea of confession and and, and why we've been doing these creeds and confessions and just to do a little bit more kind of laying of a foundation for, for what it is. Now, I'm not arguing that we will continue to do this in the future. I think there will be moments where we gather and we speak the the Apostles' Creed or we gather and confess the Nicene Creed or we say some prayers that have come from church history. Um, By and large, our confession, the modern church, the confessions we do are through song. We sing songs and the songs we sing are confessions of praise and confessions of prayer and confessions of of thanksgiving. And so I want to talk just a little bit about confessional Christianity. What is confessional Christianity? Well, first we've got to start with a definition. What is a confession? A confession is a written, formal statement that acknowledges, declares, and gives evidence of religious beliefs. Now, these types of statements were absolutely critical to the early church. They're not critical to our lives today because we're we we we're people who have access to the Bible. I mean, most of us have got numbers of Bibles in our homes. You know, various translations, various study Bibles. We've got libraries full of biblical-centered content. But in the early church there was very little literature available to people. And so statements of faith and confessions of faith were critical to help shape and educate people on matters that are essential to our lives. And so there was an emphasis on confessional Christianity throughout church history. And some of the wonderful confessions of the faith that we see that, uh, that are still in use today are, and i just give two examples, one being the Westminster Confession of Faith that was written in 1646, and then uh, off the back of that was the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689, and those two confessions are very similar. The one is just a Presbyterian version and the other one is a Baptist version, and they are filled with rich, beautiful doctrine that we believe comes from the Bible. Now, when it comes to confessions and statements of faith and church creeds and church documents, just to be clear, it's only the Bible that has authority. These confessions and these creeds are under the Bible. They are not equal to Scripture. They are subject to the teaching of the Scriptures. But what you will find is that these confessions of faith give clear Accurate statements of truth based on what the Bible teaches. Now, not only do we find it in historical documents, but we actually find it in the Scripture itself. So, the, the, the call to worship that we did today was an ancient creed that Paul says he received. It was passed on to him, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. And we read it in four different languages. That was the one. But let me give you a few other examples in the Bible where we even see the word confession or the word confess. So, for example, 1 Timothy 6 verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy He's saying to him, I want you to hold fast, Timothy, to the confession that you made. Now, we could have a very narrow view of what that confession was, Well, he just declared Jesus his Lord, and that would be right, and that would be true. But in that ancient world, it was a whole lot more than just that, because a confession of faith was to stand out from the crowd. A confession of faith was to proclaim, this is what I believe, this is what I hold to, in contrast to what other religions believe. And so Timothy was encouraged to hold fast to his original confession. And then two other simple examples, Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So it's not enough just to confess in your heart, it's not enough just to be a closet Christian. There is a sense in which we are to declare it. We are to proclaim it. We are to make it known. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice there is outward confession, there is inward confession, and there is content. It's not just, oh, I believe. No, no. What do you believe? That God raised him from the dead. In other words, he died. We believe he died. Well, who died? Jesus died. God raised him from the dead. That's, there's a lot of content there. there. There's a lot that we need to confess. There is truth. There are statements. There's history here that we need to confess. So it's loaded language, this idea of confession. Another example is James 5 verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is interesting. We have a whole church denomination that went a little pear-shaped around this verse called Roman Catholicism. But there is some truth here. There is some truth that when we gather as a community, when we gather in small groups, when we gather in accountability groups, when we gather as mentors, when we pray for one another, there is a sense in which we are confessing our sins to one another. We live in the light together. We we, we proclaim the change that God has done in our lives. We share our testimonies. But it's only Jesus that can forgive, which he makes clear a little bit later on in that verse. But I just highlight those three verses just to show you that this isn't just a church history practice, but actually it was a Bible practice. This is what people, the people of God, have done throughout generations. So you might ask the question, well, what purpose then does a confession serve? In what way does this, is this helpful? And I just want to give two simple reasons, and then I want to look at one big example. The confession speaks to us internally and externally. Firstly, internally, the confession or any confession speaks internally to the church itself. Externally, it speaks to the world. We'll talk about that shortly. But firstly, internally, it speaks to the church. It communicates to the church what we believe. It communicates doctrine and it communicates devotion. This is what we believe and we rejoice in what we believe. And the reason I emphasize that is because it's not enough just to believe. Even Satan believes. It's not enough just to believe. But what Satan doesn't do is he doesn't rejoice in the knowledge that he has. Because he loathes God. As Christians, we believe truth, doctrine, and we are devoted to it in our hearts. We rejoice in the truth that we confess. And so, confessions speak to the church internally. It, it helps us understand this is what we should believe, this is how we should think, and this is how we should live. We live the truth we believe. Confessions reveal to us the nature, the character, the works of God. They, they give a fuller picture. They take, well, for example, the, the, the character of God's kindness. And it takes all that the Bible says and it brings all of that together in a systematic way and it speaks it to us. And so we get clarity. The church gets clarity of theological conviction but notice this, the church is also given protection. Confessions bring protection to the church. It gives you as an individual a sense of security that this isn't some rogue church, that this isn't some kind of a free-spirited church, or this isn't some kind of modern version of the church, or even some cultic version of the church. It's important that we understand that the church throughout history has been confessional. It brings assurance, it brings security, and it brings protection to the church. But it also speaks externally to the world, because it distinguishes the church. The church is different from all other faiths. We have confessions that distinguish us from other faiths. We have confessions that distinguish us from other societies. We're not just a club. We are a church. We are one church with many expressions. We are the church of Jesus. We have one leader. His name is Christ. It differentiates us. And it's important that the world knows that. That we have a body of truth. We have the Bible and we have confessions that tell us what the Bible teaches. And so it declares to the world that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And at the same time, we live for the glory of God and for the good of society. So although we are the church distinct, we are not the church disengaged. It communicates this to the world, that we, we live for the glory of God, but we also live for the good of society. It's our redemptive purpose. Now, what I want to do is I want to just shift gears a little bit, and I want to look at one of the most amazing confessions in the Bible itself. It would be a mistake if we didn't anchor ourselves just for a minute or two in the scriptures themselves. So I want to look at Peter, the Apostle Peter's, amazing confession that we find in Matthew sixteen thirteen to 18. And it goes as follows. He says this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that, are, that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Notice that Jesus <coughs> is looking for truth. He asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We need answers. Jesus needed an answer. It wasn't enough just to know it in my heart. He, he wanted a confession. And people today need answers. We need to, as the church, we need to have answers. Let's carry on. Verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say I am. So they gave him a few options. Some say John, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. But, you know, all religious groups have views and prophets. And But he then says, but who do you say that I am? To Peter. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I just want to do two things for a couple of minutes. I want to look at Peter's confession, and then I want to look at Jesus' promise. So firstly, Peter's confession. We see here that he says, you are the Christ. Jesus Christ. Is not That's not his surname, by the way. Jesus Christ. Christ meaning Messiah. This is a huge statement for Peter. Peter is saying, You are the Old Testament expected one. You are the expectation of the people of Israel. You are the fulfillment of God's promises. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. The long awaited one. You are the fulfillment of the old covenant. You are the Christ. This is a profound confession. Not only that, he says, you are the son of the living God, contrasted to the other gods and idols of the day that were deaf and dumb and dead idols. Jesus is the son of the only living God, not a dead God. This is a huge statement of faith. This is a confession of profound truth. Notice that Jesus says to him, he doesn't say, you got it right, but he does in some other words. In verse 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Wow, the Son of the living God is the Father of Jesus, who is the Christ, is the Messiah. This, This is incredible truth. But, but notice also, he's saying, Peter, this confession didn't come from your smart thinking. This confession didn't come from your good will or good works or your ethnic privilege, Peter being a Jew. Peter, Jesus makes it very clear, it has nothing to do with you, Peter. Your flesh and blood did not contribute to this confession, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. It is all of grace. He, he tells Peter, it was the Father in heaven who opened your eyes. And, and Jesus is... Is brilliant here because he starts it before he says flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. He says, "Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah," and I might be wondering what's going on there. Well, simply it means that he's the son of Jonah. He's Simon Jonah's son. Jonah was the dad of not Jonah and the whale, that would be too far back, but another Jonah, and and he's the son of Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah. You have an earthly father, but not even your earthly father has revealed this to you. It's been revealed to you, not by your flesh and blood, not by your Jewish descent, not by your smart outworking of Old Testament prophecy and plan. No, no, this is the work of God, my heavenly Father has made this known to you. And so Peter's confession is full of truth but it comes by the revelation of God's Spirit. But now then notice what Jesus says. So Peter's confession of truth, theological truth, rich theological truth and Jesus responds to this rich theological truth and says this, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Firstly, the promise shows us the foundation. The promise of building a church shows us who's the foundation. Who is the foundation? Well, on this rock, Jesus says, it's the metaphor of of an actual building, Which would have made sense because in the Old Covenant they had the buildings, the the temple. But Jesus is transferring this to a, a people now. This is, we are the temple, but we are still built upon a rock, a foundation. There is a foundation upon which we build our lives. But the big debate is, well, who's the rock? Is Peter the rock? Well, throughout history, and I think on Reformation Day, it would be appropriate for us to consider, well, is it Peter? Is Peter the rock upon which the church is built? And the Roman Catholic Church would answer, yes, Peter is an important, if not the important, rock upon which Jesus builds the church. Peter is the first of many authoritative apostles, they would argue. Peter is the first of many authoritative popes. This is why they have a pope. And the pope's voice is equal to scripture. And upon that voice and upon that authority, Jesus will build his church. This is just a small insight into why the Reformation was so important. But it was an option. Given the language here, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. But did Peter think of himself this way? I mean, we know the truth. We know the truth that only Jesus is the head of the church. Only Jesus is our priest. We do not have other priests. Jesus is our living priest. He's the head of the church. But did Peter, how did Peter think of himself? And and there are are examples, but I'll just give you one for the sake of time. In 1 Peter 5 verse 1, listen to Peter's own words. Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as the head of the church. Does it say that? No. As a fellow elder. Elder. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Even though he was there with Jesus, even though he witnessed the sufferings of Christ, he doesn't get it wrong. He's not like, okay, now I'm the head-on show, and Jesus is going to build the church upon me. My apostolic authority and all of the successes. When I die, there will be another pope, and when I die, there will be another apostolic pope, etc., etc. No, Peter is like, I'm a fellow elder. I'm not the foundation. And so what is the rock? Well, it's definitely not Peter. And our only option really is it's Peter's confession. It's Peter's confession. It's not Peter. It's Peter's confession. And this is the Protestant Reformation view. That this rock, when Jesus says, I will build on this rock, he's referring to Peter's confession. And that's what we've been talking about the whole morning, right? The confession in verse 16. You are the Christ the Son of the living God, that loaded, rich theological statement. But even here, there is more clarity because of the words that Jesus uses. And it's so interesting because Jesus deliberately makes a play on words here. Jesus, in the Greek, he says that Peter, you are Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock, Peter, in Greek, is Petros. You are Petros, which directly means little stone. Little stone. You are little stone. And on this rock, Petra, Petros, Peter, Petra, rock, I will build my church. It's not you are Petros and on this Petros I will build my church. It's you are Petros and on this Petra I will build my church. What Jesus is actually doing here is he's showing us that what will come from Peter's mouth is a boulder-like truth from the mouth of a little stone. Isn't that incredible? You've got to, you've got to actually make a lot of effort to get this wrong. Especially when you read it in the original language, it's so clear. And so what Jesus is saying is that he will build his church on the bedrock of Peter's teaching, of the apostolic foundation and the, and the apostles were so clear about this, just two examples, 1 Corinthians three verse 11. "For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Ephesians 2:20, "The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Just in case you, you think it's the apostles and prophets, yes, they're part of the foundational moment, but they are not the foundation. They bring us to the foundation. And so the first thing we see here is the foundation, and I end on this, and this isn't long, don't worry, the building of the church. This great promise, Jesus says, I will build my church, those five simple words, I, meaning, revealing the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Jesus doesn't need a lot of help. I will do it, he says. The certainty of his promise is he will do it. The second word, will, I will. It's the plan of God. Not only is he supreme, but this is the promised plan. He will do it. This shows us the invincibility of the church. The supremacy of Christ and the plan of God, the invincibility of the church, the church is the means by which the kingdom of God is going to come and nothing is going to stop it. He even double clicks on that and he says, not even the gates of hell will stop it. It will happen. I will. What? Number three, build. I will build. Christ is the worker. Not only is he the foundation, he's the builder. This is incredibly good news. Jesus is both saving and sanctifying souls. This is his business. He's both the architect and the builder. He does this sovereignly. Fourthly, I will build my. The church belongs to Jesus. It is the possession of Christ. The Greek term, we have translated, my, shows us that Jesus is the author, the owner, the architect, and the builder. It's his church. The fifth word, obviously, church. The bride. It's his bride. It's his body. I will build my church on the foundation of truth quotes and then I'm done. John Piper says the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. Do we believe that? Do we believe the words of Jesus that he will build his church? He's going to lay down his life for the church? We live in a world where everything is passing away. Things pass away so quickly. Everything man has built, it just fades, it fails, it falls. Institutions, governments, families, kingdoms, kings, priests, presidents, everything tends towards decline and decay, but not the church not the church. Last quote, J.C. Ryle. Is there nothing that shall stand? Is there nothing that shall last? Is there nothing that shall endure? Is there nothing of which we can say, this shall continue forever? You have the answer to these questions in the words of our text. Our Lord Jesus Christ speaks of something which shall continue and not pass away. There is one thing which shall never perish and pass away. That thing is the building founded upon the rock, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to be part of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this promise. We thank you for this great confession. That Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. We are not waiting for another. We are not waiting for some other prophet, some other priest. You are it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we thank you for the church of the living God. That we get to be part of it. We are your body. And you are building us throughout the ages, throughout history, one people, one bride, one body, one olive tree, we thank you, Lord, that we get to be part of it. When everything else is falling, when everything else is declining, we can know that, Jesus, you will build your church and that we will prevail. We thank you that nothing can stop it. Thank you that we get to be part of this incredible, invincible, privileged family. Open our eyes again to the wonder of Christ and the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.